The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Start now. I'll start with Norman Fisher, a story that he tells from his wonderful book on compassion. This is brief. He says, there's an old Zen saying, the whole world's upside down. In other words, the way the world looks from the ordinary or conventional point of view is pretty much the opposite of the way the world actually is, at least as far as the Zen masters have conceived of it. There is a story that illustrates this. Once there was a Zen master called Bird's Nest Roshi because he meditated in an eagle's nest at the top of a tree. This was quite a dangerous thing to do. One gust of wind, one sleepy moment, and he was done for. He became quite famous for this precarious practice. The Song Dynasty poet Su Shur once came to visit him, and standing on the ground far below, the meditating master asked what possessed him to live in such a dangerous manner. The Roshi answered, <coughs> You call this dangerous? What you are doing is far more dangerous. Living normally in the world, ignoring death, impermanence, loss, and suffering, as we all routinely do, as if this were a normal and safe way to live, is actually much more dangerous than going out on a limb to meditate. So this is very much the attitude of practice, that by <clears throat> turning to face these realities, we're actually making it in the long run easier for ourselves. We're actually um, less likely to get into danger or to need rescuing. You know, we, we're creating a kind of... Uh, we're normalizing, you could say, these experiences and embracing them and seeing what, how best to prepare ourselves for these eventualities. And in that, we make them more safe for ourselves. Whatever time frame we have for our death, which we don't know, it behooves us to use our, real, our awareness of death as an impetus for realization. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who did a lot of writing and teaching on death and dying back in the gosh, 70s, 80s. She called the time before certain death, quote, the final stage of growth, unquote. She spoke about her observations of people as they approach death. And these are not Dharma people. These are, not, these are just a cross-section of people that she observed. She said, knowing they're going to die in a matter of days, the search for meaning is extremely important. What has my life meant? What has, have I fulfilled my purpose? What is the meaning now? Have my, has my life been well spent or not? And instead of making plans for the future, the pith question becomes, 
Am I alive now? Can I be present for this living moment right now? Who needs to plan for the future? This is what I got. Another thing she observed in people, acts of generosity, suddenly needing to give back, giving away, giving gifts, giving, sharing oneself, sharing things you've held back. If you only have a few days to live, you know, that may seem urgent. No more time to wait. Also, she observed that the quality of time became more important than the quantity. I may not have, a, you know, much time, but I have something of import to fill this time with. Time with family, time to heal, time to mend communications or whatever it is that's incomplete. Express my love, express my forgiveness, receive those from others. When you have no time, what is important? The moment. Hmm? What, what was said over here? When you have no time, time becomes precious. So the Buddha said... There are three things we are intoxicated with when we are alive. Which three? We are intoxicated with youth. We are intoxicated with health. We are intoxicated by life itself. He described it as intoxication. We've all been intoxicated. It's a, you know, it's a very pleasurable, in a certain way, it's a pleasurable thing to be intoxicated with life. You know, it's just, but you don't realize something. (laughs) Intoxication wears out. So when you have no time, what is important? Probably not your car. Probably not your possessions. Probably not your achievements. You know, you get stripped down. What is important? I've always thought it was telling that they said in the Holocaust when they liberated the camps. <sighs> it's hard to talk about. But they often saw stuffed into the cracks in the walls were messages. People knowing they were going to die wanted to say goodbye, wanted to write messages, wanted to say things they'd never said. It was so important, and they left them in the cracks that need to find meaning, purpose, to complete. It's very strong. Then we have, uh, you know, uh, people who are having, who are people who are near death, 
people who are near death or imagining death. This was written by a, a young woman, a Dharma person, Dharma practitioner, who was in a terrible bus accident in Laos. And it was out she was out in the jungle and the bus terrible accident and she was thought she was mortally wounded. Um she she had um let's see what had happened. My left arm was shredded to the bone as it smashed through a window. My back, pelvis, tailbone, and ribs snapped immediately. My spleen was sliced in half, and my heart, stomach, and intestines were ripped out of place and pushed up into my shoulder. I was bleeding to death. So she was, went, the time went by. There was no help coming, no help coming. And she became convinced she was going to die. As I closed my eyes and surrendered, an amazing thing happened. I let go of all fear. I was released from my body and its profound pain. I felt my heart open, free of attachment and longing. A perfect calm enveloped me. A bone-deep peace I could never have imagined. There was no need to be afraid. Everything in the universe was exactly as it was meant to be. Coming that close to death, something opened in her. In that moment, I felt my spiritual beliefs transform into undeniable experiences. Buddhism had taught me the concept of interbeing, As I lay there, I felt how interwoven every human spirit is with every other. I realized then that death only ends life, not this interconnectedness. A warm light of unconditional love encompassed me, and I no longer felt alone. You could spend a lot of hours on your meditation cushion and not have such an experience. But here she was, pushed right up to the limits of physical uh, endurance and and mortality, and something shifted. And, of course, she lived to tell this tale, so it has a, a happy ending. So when we are pushed right up against death, openings occur we could not have imagined. So... We're not in such dire situation. We might be someday, but we're not so far. And so what we can do to awaken ourselves a little bit out of the trance of intoxication and the trance of immortality and permanence and health and... Huh? Youth. Yeah. Is we can simulate... We can bring death in, in consciously to, to uh, let it affect us, making death awareness part of our practice. So that's what we're going to do right now. We have some handouts here. We're going to do a very traditional death contemplation. Maybe Carol can hand those out or maybe get help. Everybody take maybe... 
Yeah, take some on this side too. Somebody could help hand these out maybe. This is a a traditional um, Buddhist contemplation. We're going to do it as a group. So we will we will share our insights with each other. And um, it is called The Nine Contemplations of Death from Atisha. Atisha was an Indian practitioner and scholar from, oh, I don't know, the 10th century or something. He, he made this list of things to contemplate. Hopefully we have enough. If not, we'll share. There's a whole, where is, where is the pile now? Carol has more. I think there's some people in the middle here who didn't get any. And the way we're going to do this is, um, first of all, I want three volunteers, each of whom will be in charge of one of these three sections. So do I have a volunteer? Okay, that's number one. Anybody volunteer for number two? The uncertainty of the time of death. Okay, the uncertainty. And three... Only the practice of Dharma can help us up here. Okay, so the first, maybe we should, you should get the mic to read for us. Here. Yes, thank you. So if you would read the headline... The inevitability of death. And then one, two, three. One, everyone must die. Two, the remainder of our lifespan is decreasing continually. Three, death will come regardless of whether or not we have made time to practice the Dharma. And now I'd like to invite any reflections on this first part, on any of those three points. Everyone must die. The remainder of our lifespan is decreasing continually. Death will come regardless. What does this bring up for people? Or do you have examples that you've noticed that might you might want to share or offer? I... Uh... I don't like being hurried, and number two makes that brings that uh, very close. That's you mean that the remainder of our lifespan is decreasing continually? Yeah. Yeah, less time to take our time. Yeah, it's one of those don't push me, <laughs> but I understand, but don't push me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes we're pushed, like it or not. What else? Back there? 
I just was thinking of the newborn baby when a person has given birth and you see it for the first time and you think about its life. And if a movie were made that would last 100 years long and we were to watch it, speed it up, um, it would be very impressive because it would be the continuing process from the day we were born and never stopping and, and always continuing, continuing for a hundred years to transform itself and there wouldn't be any one place where, where it would stop and we would be just that person. Hmm, that's a lovely image. Yeah. Okay. There's a few more in the back and then we'll... Yeah. Death is the gift of having lived by... Uh, the author, uh, <clears throat> the untethered soul. The, the, the gift of living is death. Okay, thank you. Who else? We have some up here, up front, but I want to make sure. There's anybody else back there? Yes. When, when we read the second one about decreasing continually, uh, the span, um, it, it, I, sh- I had a physical shudder. And I realized that for many years I would say to myself, well, I haven't even lived half my life yet. Mm. Well, I still have a quarter of my life to live. Mm-hmm. And now... I don't say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you don't say that. Yes. Uh, that one, that second one, I've... Closer. I've recently had, uh, as I've aged... Let me start over. When I was younger, much younger, I was in a terrible hurry. And I did not have enough time, ever. Now I'm not in a hurry. And I've got a lot of time. Mm. It just feels like it's enough time. It's enough time. It's enough. Yeah. I call it, it, it living at... It doesn't matter how many years it is. It's enough. It's enough. I call it living at the speed of life versus living at the speed of the mind. Somebody said the, you know, the fastest thing in the world is the human mind. It can go from here to Shanghai like that. And so we've created a world where we're all trying to live at the speed of the mind, the virtual reality world. And it's exhausting to the body. And it gives you this feeling of never having enough time. But when you live at the speed of life, you are living at the speed of your, the flowers growing in your garden. You know they're growing. You see them growing. You don't exactly see them growing, but you see that they are fruiting and leaves and colors are coming. So you, you know they're growing. But slowly... 
We're no different. We are living at that speed, actually. Our bodies are designed to live at the speed of life, not at the speed of the mind. So when we live at the speed of life, we are in harmony. And we're right on time. Flowers bloom exactly on time. (laughs) Do you get it? Okay. Yeah, and practice certainly teaches us that, how to live in harmony with life processes. And when we are truly here, when we are truly just present, one breath, we may feel like Time is expansive, truly not ever lacking. Okay. Who else? I think we had some people in there. Yes. Do you have a mic? I had an expression that I used to say. I used to teach yoga and meditation. And when I was centering people in the beginning, I wanted to ground them in how important the breath was to life and death. And so I used Mm. to say this. The breath is the first thing we do when we're born Mm -hmm. and the last thing we do before we die. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Yes. It's our connection to life. Okay, yes, one up here. Um, Recently I was driving on 17, and I was sidestroked. Well, I think I sidestroked somebody. And then, you know, I fought to control my car. And as I was, you know, as I was in that, you know, situation where you're entirely present, I got this sensation like, you know, like this might be the end. And the sensation was like a teacher asking you to put down your pencil. And I kind of, then I kind of, this was in an instant, what I thought was, oh, well, and it was a feeling of having taken a test, but not knowing that you didn't answer the questions too well. It, you know, like, I wasn't finished, I didn't do too well on everything, and, um, oh well. And, um, and this is all in a split second. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, so it's, it addresses number three. That I, the sensation of not being finished, of being it's totally incomplete, and not happy with the job I had done, but like, well, what else? <laughs> That's it. Mm-hmm. The truth so, of it. Yeah. The truth of it. Mm. Yeah. The truth comes. Okay. So let's move on to the second. Uh, second. Uh, what do you call this? Triplet.
the uncertainty of the time of death. Four, human life expectancy is uncertain. Five, there are many causes of death. Six, the human body is very fragile. Responses over here. Well, if you're asking for our immediate uh, stream of consciousness, what pops into our heads, this is what popped into my head, and that is that I am really glad that there now exists a law in California that will allow me to be the cause of my own death should I choose. Mm-hmm. And it is um, uh, uh, reassuring to me that that option exists. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Here's one. Um, the human body is very fragile, and it is, and yet, for me, it has been amazing. I've been through a number of diseases and illnesses and all kinds of stuff. I mean, stuff that I was told, you know, take this medicine or that's it. And I'm just so amazed at the ability of this body to heal itself and mm. rebalance itself. Mm. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's just amazing to me. Mm. And yeah, yeah, it's fragile, but it has this incredible ability mm. to make itself right again. Mm. Mm. So yeah. it's just like, I, I guess I just have a great deal of, of admiration for this thing that I live in. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Up here. So, um, uh, the time of death um, is uncertain, and so anything that's important to do should be done now. Mm -hmm. Right. Thank you. Any other responses? All right. Yes, one. Okay. Um, I saw a YouTube video on a dog that was adopted, and it was near the end of its life. And I thought this was interesting. The owners made a bucket list for the dog (laughs) that included things like chasing the mailman, riding in a police car. (laughs) You know, all all of these things that... (laughs) <laughs> and then they were checking them off, and I'm like, maybe I should make a pocket list. <laughs> you know, there are places I'd like to go. For yourself. Yeah. yeah. I was like, geez. <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? Okay, one more in the back there. Um, thanks. It just seems um, human life expectancy is uncertain. There are many causes of death, and it's like death is all around. And, uh, I mean, it's great that we have these contemplations, but 
how much of my living day do I contemplate death is all around? That's right. The heavenly messengers are everywhere. Yeah. There was a moment I had when I started teaching on this subject at Spirit Rock when I realized that I had become, to many the young people who come for teachings, you know, many young people, I was a heavenly messenger myself. I'd become a heavenly messenger. That was a shock. <laughs> yeah. And we will all be heavenly messengers at some point for somebody somewhere. Okay, let's move on to the third and final okay, I have tetrad. Anna. Oh, you had something. Oh, oh, she, oh you're doing number three. Good. Okay. Only the practice of dharma can help us at the time of death. Seven. Our wealth cannot help us. Eight. Our loved ones cannot help. Nine, our own body cannot help. When I read about our loved ones cannot help, they can't keep us from dying, but I certainly to have loved ones around you, caring for you and supporting you, at the last moments of your life has got to make a really important difference in, in people who don't have those. Well, it may or may not. It's not that, you know, when you're dying, you're leaving this world. This is, please, anyone here more familiar having been around dying people, but my limited experience tells me that when you're dying, you're leaving it's like your your bags are packed, you're out the door, and having people say, don't go, don't go, is not really relevant anymore. But in my experience with my father dying, and I heard some other people saying this, we're standing there saying, it's okay to go. Get yes, out of that's here. Yeah. Sure, okay. Yeah. So that, that might be a more helpful way to be, actually, than, oh, please, stay. Yeah. Somebody. But we don't always get to choose the attitude of those that are gathered around, you know. I mean, sometimes it's a send-off party and sometimes it's an argument as to who gets what. Yes, I mean, that's I've true. Seen... Well, this is where preparing and stating your wishes and all the tools that are available now for you know, orchestrating who you want to be around you and how you want them to help you. That's useful. Yeah. I, I have one question. I'm a little confused. Why does, does one need help to die? Is the wealth isn't needed at that time? The loved ones, what was the third one? And, and your own body, which is dying. Why is there any need for help? Maybe there isn't. Most people, I think, feel, I I can't speak for most people, what am I saying? But, you know, there is a sense of love and support that comes quite naturally from your loved ones. Whether you need that or not is an open question. Many people die alone. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you know, there's there's a lot has come between the naturalness of dying and how it is in our hospitals and the attitudes of people, you know, interventions and doing everything it all costs to preserve life and you know, it we don't have the attitude maybe of it's a natural so we don't trust it. We trust the doctors to do something. Yes. So <clears throat> this song in particular, many people in this room, in fact, participated in the death of... one of our members. Mm. I'm still pretty yes. emotional about it. Victor right. Medina. Mm-hmm. And uh, he used to sit right here a lot. <laughs> Yeah, and um, he was a very, very dedicated practitioner, mm-hmm. and we had quite a few conversations about. He lived with multiple myeloma for twelve years, so he had a twelve-year window, mm-hmm. not one month or six months. Or, he lived with it a lot for many years, and the last couple of years it was quite accelerated, but. What he talked a lot about, his process, was being present for his death. Mm -hmm. And so he invited many of the practitioners in this room into his house to practice with him. Yes, He was, you know, bedridden at the time, but we'd all go there and sit and and practice. And it was an incredible gift that Mm -hmm. he offered. Yes. I I don't he did say at one point actually I need a little help here letting go because he was aware of his sense of clinging he had three young you know adult children and he had a lot of things that he was working through but he was very uh, kind and generous to talk about the kinds of experiences that he was having like recognizing no agency at one point as it got closer and closer and um, I'm not sure who's helping who. That's yeah. been my experience with yeah. being um, amongst dying people. Mm-hmm. Is you know who's really benefiting? Right. You know, I, I think the living benefit greatly mm-hmm. from the experience. And uh, fabulous teachers, all you know, he was a really amazing teacher right to the, his last breath. Yes. So I think yeah. Yeah, the the dying process, I suppose. You know, the the only thing that we might need help with is letting go in some ways, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But that's a completely unique thing for all of us. Mm-hmm. How do we know? Mm-hmm. So Yeah, that's my two cents. So the idea that the dharma could help us is kind of what's being said here that there is something that can help us if we feel like we need help. Maybe we don't feel like we need any help. It's just like, you know, natural. Maybe that's the truth. Or maybe you need a Dharma practice to help you. And that's where deep practice really shows up. Okay. So seven, eight, and nine are all, all 
very worldly things. Yeah. Uh, and um, there's a tendency to cling to those things and hold on to them, thinking they'll protect us yes. from, from death. Uh, and I interpret this as a t two part. One is that practicing the Dharma, which is the only thing that can help in the time of death, also teaches us how to use the worldly things while we have them. Mm -hmm. Or to make use of them in, uh -huh. in, a, in a good way in yeah. the world. Make use of them and also when it's time to let go of them, let go of them. Yeah. So there's a few, yeah. So I just would like to uh, comment that for me, seven, eight, and nine have been almost like one, two, and three from the beginning of practice. I mean, these are things that as you get onto the spiritual path, you become very aware of that these are things that have no permanence and no substance and way before death to realize that these are things that are not going to support you in any way except on the physical plane, you know. Yes. So, back here. Yeah, <clears throat> two things uh, that have made a very strong impact on me as far as <clears throat> dealing with the idea of death. Um, I got here real light. I don't know if this has been talked about before, but one is the <laughs> near-death experiences that have been reported many times. And the interesting thing I find about them is no matter where, what part of the world or what culture or religion, they all have the same consistency, mm -hmm. that there's this loving presence in the tunnel. And we've all heard that story about going mm -hmm. down the tunnel and that sort of thing. So <clears throat> that gives me hope. And the other is the idea of reincarnation, mm -hmm. which they all talk about. And every spiritual master I've... I've uh, looked into and studied have all talked about reincarnation, including mm -hmm. and especially Jesus. Uh, unfortunately, what the things he said about reincarnation were deleted from the Bible, mm. once in uh, 325 A.D. and once in 553. Mm. Um, and then uh, the documentary on Buddha that has been on PBS, probably many of us here have seen that, uh, they talk about Buddha when he was going, went through the period of enlightenment. He experienced all mm -hmm. his past lives and so forth. So the idea of reincarnation and uh, the near-death experiences, they've been a tremendous help for me. Mm -hmm. And um, rather than just dying and not knowing what's going on. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, on the one, our loved ones cannot help. <clears throat> I'm not thinking about help, but they, the energy. I was with my brother and my mother when they died. The energy of love yeah. that flowed from them to me. Mm -hmm. My mother died in a, well, she was in a coma too. I, they were both in a coma. My mother went very sweetly. I didn't even know she died. My brother, um, it was that thing of death, the, the death call, the rattle. And uh, we had done the uh, <clears throat> no risk creation or something. 
And the doctor beside me said, what a blessing that the family had chosen not to hook him up to a machine because we knew he was brain dead. But the energy that came from the love, and then of course it says help, and I don't know if this is referring to help us from not dying, because the, the gift of dying is a gift. We're going to stop there. Thank you all very much for your sharings and your reflections. I think you can sense this is a powerful contemplation. And I find it particularly powerful to do in a group, uh, no matter how large or small, you know, to bring it out of the recesses of your own private ruminations and into sharing reflections with others is another way to practice. Um, not being in denial of this ever-present reality of change, impermanence, death. Suzuki Roshi, I'll end with something Suzuki Roshi said. A little shocking, but given what we've been covering, probably more more in touch, huh? Wait, what the hey? Suzuki Roshi said, the ancient bodhisattvas were not afraid of, rather found joy in poverty, failure, and death. This is this upside down view of what's important. That actually by being open to death, in this case, there's some hidden possibilities. Maybe joy, maybe freedom. So this is what we're needs to be included in the contemplation. It's not an exercise in being, you know, negative or being um, depressing. But actually it's pointing the jewel in the lotus. We're pointing at the jewel hidden in the... the oh, okay. The ancient bodhisattvas were not afraid of, but rather found joy in poverty, failure, and death. That's not to say we should become... P- obsessed with death and you know not that but that there's a sense of something there that might be important that's the awakening part so I think we need to walk because we've been in here now for a while and I think we could do a walk it'll have to be a somewhat 